Thanks for pressing play. You're listening to Lockhead on Marketing, the oddcast for entrepreneurs, marketing executives, and category designers with a different mind. Hi, I'm producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we welcome Mike Bruno, senior category designer at Play Bigger. Today, Chris and Mike dig into what it takes to make category design your career and how incredible it is working with some of the most advanced technology companies in the world on category design. If you're an entrepreneur or marketing leader who wants to go beyond competing to actually create and dominate your own market, you're in the right place. Category Pirate's new book, The 22 Laws of Category Design, is the number one bestseller in both marketing and startups on Amazon. This is the ultimate book of foundational insights, data, and frameworks for people who want to design and dominate new market categories. Go to Amazon today and pick up your copy of The 22 Laws of Category Design. Now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed on Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. How you doing, Mike? I'm good. How are you, Chris? I'm stoked to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So a little bit ago, you wrote this great blog post, something like what I learned in my first year as a category designer or something like that. What was it called? Yeah, my first, Yeah, what I learned for, in my first year as a category designer, a year after I had joined that Play Bigger. And uh, so now how long have you been a category designer? It's been a year and a half. year and yeah, a half. So I, started, I started in January of 22. What a weird time to start. <laughs> it was a weird time. Things were going bananas when I started. And uh, just as I started to figure out category design, it started to flutter a little in the tech market. So it was a strange time for sure. And so maybe help me understand what it's like to be a brand new category designer and kind of what you've been learning over the last year and a half. Yeah, well, it was interesting for me. So I started my career uh, working at agencies, PR agencies, uh, doing social advertising, things like that. I don't, hold, I don't hold that against you in any way. <laughs> Previously, like before I started at Play Bigger, I was in this role where I was overseeing strategy and also research for the firm. And my role really was to try to help people get through whatever problems they had. And usually they come to me and say, okay, here's a issue that we have right now. Can you help me figure it out? And from all the experience that I had, it was pretty easy to do. Moving into category design was um, sort of a return to that beginner mindset for me, which is really interesting. After you start to get good at something, you kind of set into cruise control is one of the reasons why I wanted to try something new, because the experience sort of takes over and you know how to do this. You've seen this game of chess before, so you can sort of play the board. Coming into to category design, there's a lot of similarities between those two worlds, so it actually made it even more interesting. So the idea when you're in when you're doing advertising or PR strategy, you're usually starting with a business objective and source of volume that somebody else has already come up with, you know, way up the chain before it comes to you. And so you know what you want to do usually and you know what product you want to sell in order to get there. And then our job as a strategist is to figure out okay, you got this business problem, which is great, but who cares nobody? Now you need to figure out what the human problem is behind that business problem. And it had better be an interesting problem and you'd better have an interesting way of talking about it because there are a million other people trying to compete for the attention of whomever it is you're trying to talk to. So our job was to try to find that problem and then also attach it to an insight, which in like strategy world, insight just means like a new, like something that occurs to you that gives you a new way of thinking about reality or problem or whatever. So that as you might imagine, translates, I think, quite well to category design because category design, the front door is the problem. What is the problem you're actually solving that hasn't been solved? And so that felt pretty natural for me. But then there were so many new concepts and ideas. And also it's a sort of different 
aperture that you're working with. When you're when you're working in category design, you're talking not only about how are you going to structure the business for the companies that you're working with, but how are you going to structure everybody else's business that comes into it versus how am I going to make an ad, you know, that that is going to pay off on some decisions that have already been made, you know, way up the chain, as I said. So it was it was a lesson in sort of this humility and trying to figure it all out. But then also this weird sense of, I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're all coming together at once. Fascinating. It's so one of the things that we share with people is category design is yes, something you learn, but it's more something you get. And, um, People from the traditional marketing world in general, based on my experience, I'd be curious to see what Al says. Um, I, I bet it would be similar. Um, people with a traditional marketing background, people with a traditional entrepreneur background often have a very difficult time understanding category design um, because in a lot of ways, it's the opposite. Most people in marketing They don't necessarily realize it, but they've spent their entire careers trying to catch existing demand in an existing market. And it often doesn't occur to them that somebody designed the market. And shifting from being somebody who's catching demand in an existing market to somebody who category designs a whole new market takes a radical amount of unlearning. And so you had a great career in PR and marketing. And so as a marketer, I'm curious, like, what was it like to go from essentially being somebody who was having a great career in traditional marketing roles Mm. to this, what for many is a leap that is so great that requires so much unlearning, they can't ever make the leap. Yeah, yeah uncomfortable <laughs> you know it's uncomfortable making that transition um but i think i think what's so interesting about what you're saying and the sort of way that people think about categories and the sort of thing yeah i talked about insight before like insight in in, in strategy is like a new reality that's a new reality that when you say it it's like fuck yeah obviously that's true like somebody invented these categories and whether it sort of happened over a long period of time by accident, or there was a method behind it vis-a-vis category design, like there was no divine spirit that came down and said, these will now be the categories. And I think when I heard that, it kind of gave me that facepalm moment of being like, of course, that is so obvious. And then when you back that up to the problem then is that you're solving problems that have already been solved, that becomes a huge issue. And I think what I started to realize as I went through a couple of reps in category design is you have um, like this overestimation of the importance of spending less money, doing something a little bit faster, a little bit better. People tend to think that that's really important when they're working in companies. And it is important, but I think they overestimate that. And then I think they underestimate the value of not doing a damn thing. Not because it's like laziness, although I'm sure that that's, you know, exists in some places, but I don't think that's the problem. I think like not doing a damn thing means that you don't have any risk. You don't have any downtime. You're doing, you're solving a problem already. You don't have to go back and try to, um, you know, work out all the kinks because it's done. You check that box. I think people underestimate how powerful that is. Hmm. Why? Because when you're in the company, you're looking at the amazing stuff that you're doing and there are amazing engineers, product developers, founders who have realized that they can do something pretty amazing. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, you can see the amazing piece of technology and that's really seductive. But when you're not looking at it from the perspective of the end customer, you don't necessarily realize that it may not be enough to move them off of where they're at already because they're in this position where they've solved the problem And there's a lot of risk in trying something that might be faster, might be better, because it might not be. 
And it might come with other issues they don't anticipate and they might have to train people to do it. And that's a huge barrier. Yes. So maybe let's talk about something that's a little bit topical. Uh, fairly recently, Apple, in most people, let me say it this way. Most people in marketing think what Apple did was launch a new product called the Vision Pro. That's what most people think they did. What we understand, of course, is that's true. They clearly did do that. And they launched a new category design. They did not use any of the language of the old category. If you look at their press release and you watch the intro video from Tim Cook, what you'll notice is they never use the word VR and they never use the word headset. They talk about a new category called spatial computing. And the aha here for people is most marketers, most entrepreneurs launch products and legends category design markets. Mm -hmm. Here's what's interesting to me about that. And I'd love to get your perspective on it. So spatial computing as a term has been around 20 some odd years, probably longer than that. And then you take a company like Magic Leap Right, which has been around for you know about the same period of time, and, and with a huge amount of hype, they talk about spatial computing. That is a category that they tried to create, and I don't think anybody would agree that they got there. The product never lived up to the promise, and they had promise and vision for days, in my opinion. The way that they would talk about the reality that they were going to create was inspiring. I mean, you read the stuff; it's very inspiring stuff. And then the, the category never comes to fruition. So I'm, I've been thinking about why does that happen? Why did that happen? Where Apple, clearly, I agree, like this feels like a new category, launched like a new category. And I think it has something to do with, I believe the technology will reach the vision. Whereas I think Magic Leap might not have been able to close that gap. Okay. I love that we're having this conversation. <laughs> so... The lens that you just spoke through is a product lens. So you just said magically talked about spatial computing, but essentially their product never delivered the promise. Yes. Correct. I don't know enough about magic leap to know whether or not that's right. Let's just assume that's right. That would be part of why they failed. However, it's only part because they launched a spatial computing product, yes? Mm -hmm. They didn't category design the spatial computing market category. And that is the difference. And so people say, I want spatial computing's been around for 20 years. <laughs> and this is one of the biggest sort of misunderstandings, and, and it's where trillions have been lost is the delta or the difference or the distinction between first to ship a product with a certain set of capabilities and first to category design a market category that scales and tips. And the design of the category, the product is part of it. But as we talked about from the beginning of the creation of the discipline of category design, it's about what we call prosecuting the magic triangle, getting product, company, and category right. And so what all the prior players in the spatial uh, category have been doing for 20 years is primarily having a product and a technology conversation. Nobody stepped forward and said, we are going to category design a new market category where we are going to purposely frame, name, and claim a new problem. And where we are purposely going to create an ecosystem of partners that are b uh, bounded together to go solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And we're now going to go evangelize the power of the problem and therefore the solution. Nobody else did that. And people say, well, they are first to category design the market. And that's why now they're positioned to get two-thirds of the economics and all the quote-unquote pioneers in the category because they shipped product and didn't category design a market category, they're going to be left there wondering what the fuck happened when spatial computing 
contributes a meaningful percentage of the next trillion dollars of market cap, because I think it's just my personal opinion, Apple's three trillion right now. And I'd be shocked if they don't get to four trillion and they'll probably be the first company to get to four trillion. We'll see. But they're going to get to four trillion and spatial computing dominance is going to be part of what catapults them to four trillion. That's my that's my yeah. personal prediction. And all the other spatial players are going to sit there and wonder, well, why did this happen to us? Mm-hmm. And they'll never get it. I think too, that was like, so speaking of like what was surprising about categories design in general is you think coming into it, at least I did coming into it, you understand the problem is really important. And then you think that the category name is the real critical bit. And that once you've got that figured out, you've got it figured out. And the idea that you're talking about, which is category design is an entire process. You have to do a lot of things in order to be successful at category design, not just come up with a new term, but to do the entire process. And I, I think when you look at Magic Leap, the, the, the blueprint to me probably was never work that was done. There was like an idea of spatial computing, but it was never fully realized. I think all the stuff that you're saying, I agree with. And that became pretty interesting to me that, it's not so much the idea that you want to make a new category, but it's the rigorous process that you have to go through in order to make that category successful. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> so what are the things that you now know a year and a half into being a category designer that you wish somebody told you um, on your first day as a category designer? Um, I have one thing in particular. I'm sure there are a few more that'll come to mind, but the, the thing that I wish somebody had told me actually before a very specific meeting was the goal too. And we're doing category designs with companies is a lot of times, you know, you and Al and Dave have talked about, we think the answer to the question is already in the room. And a lot of times what I find is when you're starting to go through the category design process and it depends on the company, but there might be these sort of cultural elements that try to that, that sort of push people towards a congenial consensus that's sort of meaningless. And we were working with a client where we were in that, you know, and it was, nobody was happy. Nobody was upset. It was fine. And so we went back and we said, okay, well, let's take another crack at whatever, wherever we were, problem, solution, and category name, sort of a mini point of view and see if we can get a reaction out of this. And I'll tell you what happened, and then I'll tell you what I wish somebody had told me, which is um, we spent a bit of time writing this. I wrote most of it and tried really hard, and I thought it was really good and shared it with Al and Jason at Play Bigger, and we felt good going into the session. Um, then dramatically read this thing. We go through, you know, kind of point by point, feel like it's really landing. And then we get to the end, and um, and we say, okay, what do you guys think? And, you know, you got all of sort of like – Oh, there's some good stuff here, good stuff there. And then the founder, CTO get on um, and they say uh, something to the effect of the entire time you were reading that, I wanted to punch the screen and it made me want to hang up the phone. And I don't think that that's right at all. And there were a whole bunch of reasons why that were sort of because there was information that they had that I didn't necessarily have. But the point and what Al told me afterwards, the point was, by getting to a sort of minus one instead of a zero, it is just as important as getting to that one. So like, you know exactly what you don't want it to be. And then we're able to transition that into a conversation about, we know it's not that all of the passion is sort of riled up in this team right now. How do we now move into what it should be? And within an hour, we walked out of that room with exactly the solution and exactly the category name. So we got it dead wrong, but getting it dead wrong was so much better than getting it partially right. So in other words, by having a point of view, even if that point of view is wrong in these sort of work sessions, you're going to get to something that's good. And so the guts to do that is something I wish somebody had talked to me before I was in there, but I certainly learned after the fact. And I think that was one of our most successful sessions, ironically, um, you know, after the fact. You know, you awesome. So there's a huge, there's a bunch of unlocks there. So let's, let's, let's pop the hood. The first one is new category designers often think their job is to come up with the answer. And sometimes the category designer comes up with, quote unquote, the answer, whether it's the category name or the framing of the problem or the architecture and the languaging of the POV, and sometimes all of the above. Um, there have been category designs that I've been involved with, we've been involved with, 
where we're the generators of a lot of that stuff. And that's, that's great. And that's not the job of the category designer. The job of the category designer is to have the legendary category design that is going to create a giant new uh, potential that the company can then go execute on and ultimately get two thirds of the economics in the category that they designed. That's the job of the category designer. And if the category designer contributes two words to the, the POV and that's it, and is the synthesizer of what's already in the minds of the executive team and the entrepreneur and the leadership team, the marketing team, the sales team, product team, et cetera, then the category designer did her job. <laughs> and so our job is to have the result happen, not to be the primary author of the result and to be a contributor to co-creating the content that ultimately is the category design, the POV, the lightning strike plan, the, all, you know, the ecosystem development, the business model discussion, the whole thing. Uh, of course, we're contributors to that, but um, our job is to have the result happen, not necessarily to be the sole author of all the shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like, certainly Al had shared that with me, but you feel it in a different way when you're actually in the middle of it and you see that happening and you're like, you know what? This is getting us to the right answer and is therefore a success. And that transition you're talking about, that is different. You know, moving from where I was to where I am now, where I was looked at, you know, hey, you need to be coming up with the right strategy because that's what we're pitching clients. That's what we're ultimately pitching customers. And the switch to trying to get that out of a team is a really interesting one. It's also, frankly, um, the difference between a category designer and a traditional consultant, right? In a lot of ways, the consultant's job is to come up with an answer. And the category designer's job is to have the answer happen and to have the answer that happens be an answer that the company can then go execute and win with in the real world. Um, and that's a very different thing. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced this. I experience it all, all the time. Um, people say, all right, we, we, we got you in here. The, the category designers have arrived from on top of the mountain, right? Okay, do me. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, we're going to do you together. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, you know what I find too is our, our engagement is like, you know, anywhere between three and six months for that strategy phase. And I find the first definitely month, but usually month and a half, two months, it's a transition from that mindset among the companies we're working with to the, we are in this thing together, building it together. It takes time for them to start to transition, but it's exactly what you're talking about. We see it almost every time. Now I'm curious, it, category design requires uh, a lot of unlearning for the company, the client. And so how have you, and, and it required a lot of unlearning for you moving from more of a traditional marketing background and now a category design uh, career. And so how do you help the CEO, the founders, the CMO, the executive team go through the ahas of category design that you have gone through yourself? Yeah. Yeah. No, in, in some ways, I feel, you know, the, the best teachers are the ones that have just learned it themselves because you remember what's really hard. So what we've done and what I've kind of helped do at Play Bigger is to do a few things. First of all, we put together a series of, we call them explainer videos. They're basically Loom videos where we kind of walk through, okay, what is each piece of this? Try to explain category design in simple terms before we actually get into the sessions. Then we always kind of come back to what you were just talking about, which is when you solve a new problem and you actually go through the category design, then you are going to get that 76% market cap. And that is powerful, but you have to actually do the work to get there. And if you sort of bail out last minute or you know midway through, whatever it may be, you're never going to end up there. So coming back to those kinds of things is helpful. And then always, again, I feel like that problem statement and making sure that we feel like that is a real unsolved problem and continually bringing our clients back to that has been helpful. 
And then the other thing we started doing that I find pretty useful is we have our, our category assessment survey that we send out to uh, all of the companies we work with a few weeks before we kick off our first session. And if I understand this right, as Al's explaining to me, essentially this is a survey assessment of a bunch of smart people in the company. And what do you ask them in, in that survey? Yeah. So it's it's 16 question survey. We send it to people who are going to be on what we call the category design team, which is usually like the six to eight people who are actually doing the category design with us. And then people who have been around for a while and are sort of influential, consequential uh, decision makers within the organizations. Um, and we started by just sending it to like 10 or 15 people. Now we'll send it to, you know, as many as makes sense, you know, up to a hundred people internally. And I say internally because we've also started to share a different version with external audiences when we can get to customers and sometimes partners, if it makes sense for the company that we're working with. And then we end up getting back, you know, 16, they're all open-ended questions. So 16 responses from each one of those, those audiences. And what we do is we, the, the questions that we ask are things like simple, like what problem do you solve? What happens when you problem, when you solve that problem? What happens when you don't? What are the ramifications? We ask questions about the solution. How do you solve this problem? Um, what was your founding insight, which is often very related to the solution? Uh, who has this problem? What happens when you solve it? So just all of these kinds of questions um, that are similar to that. Explain it to me like I'm five years old so we can get out of the jargon um, and actually figure out what- I, I always say explain it to me like I'm a drunken five-year-old, but- <laughs> Yeah, maybe that. Maybe I'll get clearer answers. Um, so, so these are the kinds of questions that we ask. And then the way that we've set up the engagements is we will, we have basically five tent pole kind of work sessions mm -hmm. where we have that category design team come in and we've been doing them remotely one because out of necessity, but now we actually prefer it because we're able to use mural and have people sort of adjust and uh, digest and then uh, edit into exactly what we've created before. So I think I get the process. What is the value of getting 50 to hundred people, sometimes external to the company to answer essentially a set of questions around what problem do we solve? Why does that problem matter? Uh, who do yeah. we solve it for? You know, what's the ramifications of not solving? It's a very extensive set of questions around essentially how do you think about the problem and the people for whom you solve this problem? Yeah, yeah. So when you get all of those answers back, why is that an important critical input, Mike, for the start phase of category design? Because what's interesting is even when we have a small number of folks, we get a ton of different problems that people identify. So what we do is we take that information and let's say like the, the question of what problem do you solve? We'll look at all of the answers that we have and we'll start to back out what problems are actually being talked about and we'll group all of the answers around those problems. We call them problem dimensions and we create cluster maps. So you might have, you know, problem dimension A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, maybe up to 10 of these different problems. And what you find is often in the individual responses, you'll have a very nicely worded response that sounds coherent and like a single-minded thing. And actually, when you look at it through this lens, there are three different problems in that one response. And then you times that, you know, times the eight people in the, on the category design team or the 50 people you're talking about, you can start to visualize, here are all of the problems that you could solve. And you can start to visualize here is where you think of the problem and here are where your customers think of the problem. And you can put that up on a mural board in a cluster map and you can say, do any of these problems feel right? Usually they feel too small. And is there any key difference in the way that they're being answered by the different audiences? And is it possible that there is a bigger problem, usually there is, that sits on top of all these? So it becomes an amazing mirror, you know, to your point, like we're not coming with the answer. We're literally displaying your answers to you right now. And if you don't like what you see, we need to talk about that. And then we can use that to bridge into the most important first step, which is figuring out what the actual big problem we're going to solve is. So that's where it becomes helpful. You can do the same thing on the solution side as well. And how often have you found in your extensive uh, career as a category design, Dr. Bruno, 
that people say to you, hey, why the fuck are we spending so much time on the problem? Like what everything you just said and you talk about the kinds of problems and and what you had all sorts of language that you just used there <laughs> to break this shit <laughs> down. Right. And so if you had people say, why, why are we doing this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like when we're starting to collect the information and when we want to have these people in these sessions where we're reviewing this stuff, there, there can also be a sort of safeguarding of like the executives who are actually going to make the decisions Mm -hmm. sometimes. Like why would, why do we need them? Why is this consequential? So we definitely get that. Um, It's not every time, but it does come up. And in those well, and the thing is, it's so much the opposite of marketing strategy, right? Most marketing strategy starts with, what, what, are, what do we want our brand attributes to be? How do we want to position our brand? And all of a sudden, we're immediately having a conversation about us. Mm. The, the nonstop discussion, surveys, debates, arguments, we could frame it this way, we could frame it that way, we could frame it a whole other way, we could play that is all about what's going on with the customer. And it's a big unlock for people to shift their thinking from us, our products, our technology, our features, our brand, our business model to them. And you would think at this stage of business, this would be like not new news. This would be like an exercise everybody does. But the reality is, you just described a process where you spend at Play Bigger three to six months, essentially nailing the problem such that you can tee up the category, the POV, and therefore the solution. And yet virtually every other uh, marketing consultant, business consultant starts with the company or the product or the brand, not the customer problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're completely right. And what we also see is as we're going through that and we start to then move into the category, like what category would we actually be in? We have conversations about what categories already exist and where would Gartner put us or some other you know, firms that would create or, or, or label categories that already exist. And there is that sort of tendency, I think, to want to, because it's trained in people, there is a set amount of money that's already committed to this category. If we can shave off this amount of it, we'll be successful. So we are going to source volume by stealing share from whatever. And when we start to change the conversation from that, where are we going to steal share from? What's the sort of TAM within this existing category to what is the category potential for the thing that we're building? It's often orders of magnitude larger because it's something that nobody's solving. And as soon as you convince people that this can be solved, then living with the consequences of that problem are no longer tenable. You have to have a line item for this thing. And I think that's where people start to come around. Fascinating. What else had you wished you had known a year and a half ago, Michael? Um, let's see. The, um, the need to completely embrace category design if you're going to do category design. So the idea that you can't treat this as a positioning or a campaign and working with a lot of folks who have sort of been trained that way, you talk about unlearning. Um, I think knowing that, I mean, I knew it sort of rationally, but but actually like totally understanding what that means would have been more helpful. And I see like when I look even at companies like Qualtrics, even now, and you look at the way that they talk about everything, it's all through the lens of XM. The company is completely oriented around that. And it's made an enormous difference. And I think when I look at the successes of the companies that we've worked with before me and, and since I've come, it, that to me has been the single most um, predictive factor in like who's going to be successful is who's actually going to do the work and adopt this thing completely. It's the difference between missionaries and mercenaries, fundamentally. Yeah. And it's the difference between people who have the courage of their convictions and the people who are chasing existing markets. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Now, um, if I was somebody who was considering a career in category design, I reached out to you and I said, hey, Mike, can we get together for our coffee or a beer or 15 tequilas? Because um, I'm considering a career in category design. What would you tell me about how to think about uh, entering this as a, as a profession for myself? Well, I think the first thing I talk about is like coming in with that realization that you're going to have a lot to learn, you know, that there's, there are so many components like within category design that in order to be successful, you've got to sort of start from that beginner mindset. I think, I think the real trick, it's sort of like what I mentioned in that first question, the first answer to your question is like the people that I'd probably be talking to have adjacent skill sets. And the trick is after you've done that for a while and become successful doing something, can you take that adjacent skill set and break it down before you build it back up? Like you have all of the pieces, but they're all out of order and you need to sort of think about how you're going to put them back up. So I think that would be, you know, are you ready for that would be a really important piece. And then, you know, the, the other thing is, are you, ready to drive this sort of rocket ship where it's going, knowing that the stakes are going to be really high. And when you're launching a category, there's you're doing some research in advance, but really you're seeing something nobody else has seen and you're doing tons of work. And then you're taking a leap of faith that we're going to make this thing happen. And there's a lot of consequence sort of bound up in that. And I think you know, you, you see it like all the time, right before lightning strikes where companies have this little bit of jitters and that's normal. And that makes a lot of sense because you've got a healthy performing business most of the time. But, but the question is how long will that business continue to perform? So you've got to create something meaningful, you know, and, and so are you ready to do that? Um, and then I think in a, the, the other thing I would talk about is the ability to move like what you said from having the solution into trying to find the solution like how comfortable are you facilitating with people who have spent their career sort of figuring out how to be successful and getting them to then see a new reality through their own work and sort of being that guru versus the yes. expert so let's go to the high stakes nature of this, because I think this is something that I hear a lot from newer category designers. So if you have a marketing background or a strategy consulting background, or even if you're a former successful entrepreneur who practiced category design, whether you realize it or not, and are now doing category design with others, I think one of the things that happens for a lot of people is because this is not a strategy that could be thrown out because this is not marketing to this in your messaging that's, mm. or a campaign, which is how a lot of people treat a lot of these things. Mm. What we know is the stakes are high. As a matter of fact, one company is going to get two thirds of the economics and everyone else is going to get fucked and compete for the, this, the table scraps. So the, the stakes in a business context, literally these are the, the category design is the highest stakes game in business. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, as a side note about this, um, one of my heroes is, is Sugar Ray Leonard, the boxer. And he has this great quote that we've modified that you might like, where he talks about boxing. And he says, people play golf. Nobody plays boxing. People play marketing. Nobody plays category design because the winner takes two thirds of the economics. Okay, so with all that said, you're moving from a marketing PR background where things are at stake. It's important. There's real money and it's, it's very valuable work. There's no question about that. And it doesn't sit at the core of what will or won't make a particular company legendarily successful or not the way the category design decision does. So new category designers are generally dealing with high stake, a higher stake situation more regularly than they ever were before in their careers. Was that the case for you, Mike? 
Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. That was the case. I mean, we're talking about for the most part the things that I was working on, launching a new product, or you know, sometimes there'd be a new initiative. I did some change management as well, helping companies deal with you know changes in leadership and things like that. But they were very usually specific things and not um, structural elements of a business or let alone a category. So yes, the the stakes were higher. And so how do you deal with that? Uh, you're now in a situation where you're dealing with founder CEOs, CEOs. You're often dealing with uh, investors, venture-backed or venture investors who are on the board. I know because obviously I'm one of the co-founders of Play Bigger. Uh, I mean, a huge percentage of the company's business comes from referrals from some of the top tier VCs uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, and so, and and these people you know, founder CEOs, top tier venture capitalists, these people know exactly what's at stake. And there's Mike Bruno and you're in a board meeting. You're in a category design jam session with the executive leadership team. Everybody knows what's at stake and they're looking at you because mm-hmm. you're the category designer. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that and what advice you'd have for people who maybe aren't used to being as a career, as a daily job, working on such a seminal, critical component of what makes or breaks a company. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's getting some practice. You know, you're actually doing the work that's going to enable you to start to be able to do it better. So I think having the infrastructure that I had around me with Al and Jason, as we sort of walk through this, and I can take a little piece here, a little piece there, it was really helpful in sort of learning how to do it. And then I think ultimately what you have to be ready for coming into category design as a new category designer is you ideally will be coming into a situation where somebody is teaching you like that and sort of walking you into the to the pool, so to speak. But at a certain point, they're going to drop you off and, you know, sooner or later you're going to swim by yourself, right? (laughs) You're going to have to swim by yourself. Exactly. And I think what you have to understand is once you learn what category design is and how to do it, you end up with, it is a superpower. I believe it's something that you're able to understand in a way that others haven't sort of gone through to, to understand that. And it's such a shift in the way that people think that even when you haven't perfected it yet, and what do they say? It takes, you know, 40,000 hours or whatever it is to become an expert. Even before you get to that point, you end up with a lot of value that you can give to companies. And so it's believing in that, in what you have, in a way that also, like you said before, enables you to sort of be wrong and you don't have to have the right answer. But knowing that what you've got is bringing value to the clients and the companies that you're working with is, I think, the most important thing. And then moving forward with confidence because like, there, there's a lot of people kind of talk about imposter syndrome and it's a thing that comes up quite often. And, and I don't doubt that it's real, but also... When I started doing category design, there were situations earlier on where I would be in these situations and I would say, Fuck, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. But it's not imposter syndrome. It's like I literally didn't know how, I hadn't done it before. So I had to learn, you know, how to do it. But you also, I feel like you learn by actually doing it. And when you have the sort of background of understanding what this thing actually is, then you can start to do and sort of yes. work through that. That's learning. You're on such an important point. So I, I get imposter syndrome. There's some value in kind of breaking this down and a lot of people feel this way and, and, and I get it. So, so I don't want to overly shit on it. And you're not an imposter when you're new. Yeah. We were all, we all walked into the dojo as a white belt. Every single one of us. And there's no shame. And you're not an imposter because you're a white belt. You're a white belt. I agree. And, and I think that's a mistake that a lot of us make. The other thing about being an imposter is an, an imposter is somebody who's pretending to be something then they're not. Well, 
I don't think I was ever an imposter. I've always been exactly who I am. And I've been, I've tried to be. Uh, Look, maybe you're over your skis a bunch of times in your career. I've certainly been over my skis, but I never lied to anybody about who I was or who I wasn't. And so the other thing I would say is how you deal with imposter syndrome is do your fucking homework and don't lie. Don't be an imposter. (laughs) Um, And it's okay to be a new category designer. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. And category design is as much, you know, it's something you get as it, as much as, as it is something you learn. And when it snaps in, it snaps in and you got it. Yeah. And then you just get more and more experience with it. And so this, this leads me to my next set of sort of thread, which is what's it like as a new category designer, Mike, when the lightning strike happens the category design goes live and all of a sudden the world starts embracing that category design, the way you frame, named and claim the, the, the problem, the way you've evangelized the solution, the new language you brought to the world, um, uh, the, the radically different uh, set of ideas that now the world starts playing back to you. And starts accepting as the next new big thing in this uh, broad space. What's it like for you when you start to see, you know, you just spent the last three to six months with a company creating all of this. And now all of a sudden customers and the media and thought leaders and, and others in the ecosystem are now starting to parrot back the point of view and the key elements of the category design. What's that feeling like? I mean, it's incredible. And what I'll tell you what was most incredible for me is the speed at which that tends to happen, which then I think ironically gets back to the problem of how most companies are approaching growing market share and growing their businesses. Because all of a sudden, it's not just the commentators out there, but it's the competitors very quickly who are like, we have that one too. Like we're we're in this category and within like days, weeks, it's astonishing how quickly that happens. Um, and that is incredibly validating. That was another surprising thing for me as a category designer is like, you know, trying to wall people out for so long in my career and say, this is our area and trademark this. And, you know, this is our tagline, whatever. And now saying, no, come on in and try to do this. But if you don't have all of the pieces, if you don't play by the rules that we created, with this blueprint, then you're not going to be here. And we've trained our, our customers to be asking for those things with all of these artifacts that we've done. Um, so it, incredibly gratifying. And also just like the first few times it's happened to me, it's been like so surprising how quickly it turns into like a, oh fuck moment for those competitors trying to feel like we do that too. Or like, let's, you know, undercut them somehow. And, and you can't do it when you do the process right. That is, I, I'm so with you on that. Um, one of the more recent category designs that I was involved with, um, when the company launched the category design with their first lightning strike, a couple of things happened that were incredible. Uh, they got, I, I think it was over 50 in the first two or three days, resumes from their two or three primary competitors. Amazing. Because the the real swashbucklers at the competitors all understood the same thing, which is, oh, fuck, I thought I was at the right company. And what you just did means that you're going to win this category and we're not, and I got to get the fuck out of here and go the fuck over there. (laughs) And then the other one, to your point, and it's funny because um, like anything, as you do this over time, you learn lots and you learn how it's likely to go down. Hmm. And so uh, as a a seasoned category designer, when I'm involved with any kind of a company, depending on where they are in their cycle, I can tell them with 70 to 90 degree or 70 to 90 percent accuracy what is likely to happen next, whether it's inside the company, outside the company. Uh, And I I literally will say, okay, listen, we're going to do this and you watch the following is going to happen. And then I'll get a text or an email within a few days or a week and they'll be like, how the fuck did you know that? I said, well, I've been doing this for 35 years. And so the other one, to your point in this, in this one I'm describing in in specific, um, 
we had spent a lot of time in the category design and the creation of the POV framing the opening question or, or writing the opening question that framed the problem for whom it was the language we wanted to use. It needed to be one question that was going to, in this case, it was for CEOs. It was B2B play. It had to be a question pointed at the CEO mm -hmm. that was so radical. It would stop her in her tracks. Mm -hmm. And we did that. The question was a legendary question. The company's leading with the question to this day. Anyway, long story longer. One of their main competitors on their homepage and in posts two days after the strike that was leading with this big question to tee up the category conversation, the POV, ripped off the opening question. That's amazing. With no shame whatsoever. That that to me is like, the th it just shocked me when that, I mean, like that type of action is just incredible and, and validating for all of the work. What, what's so interesting to me also is when you talked about the employees applying to, um, to the company that you were working with after seeing the category design, like th that is when you think about what a company is and how it's made up of employees and the power of category to not only sell more of whatever it is that you're selling, but to build that company from within because the vision that you have vis-a-vis -vis that category is compelling and interesting. That's sort of, it's something I hadn't thought about until you mentioned it, but that's something that, you know, almost creates that, that cycle flywheel where you're able to continue then developing amazing things and attracting the right kinds of people who are invested in the category. Well, and it's one of the things that we've been remiss about talking about and writing about is I think in a lot of ways, the most powerful uh, leverage of category design is internal because all of a sudden you now have what most people call a vision, right? The, the employees of a company now understand what's the problem we solve? How do we talk about that problem? Why is that problem an important problem? How we are uniquely qualified and capable of solving that problem. Having employees understand that, um, uh, she who owns the problem becomes the solution. Having people understand, if you market your product, I think you want my money. If you market my problem, I think you want to help me, et cetera, et cetera, right? These are giant unlocks for people. And when they start to see it happen and they start to see often, you know, two things happen very quickly. One, the prospects and customers start parroting back the category point of view. And they're like, oh, my God, they're using our words. Like, yeah, well, that's because we created a legendary category, POV. And then the competitors do everything we've been talking about and, and, and more. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. It barely took them a week to rip us off. It, their homepage is different in two fucking days. And like, yeah, right. well, what they just did was Venmo us their entire marketing budget. <laughs> yeah, 100%. But it's, it's to your point, you know, Guys like Al and I, Kevin, Al and I, those of us who've been doing category design for so long, we know these things are going to happen. It's cool every time. Don't get me wrong. But if you ask the Rolling Stones today what it's like for them to stand up on a, in a stadium with 50,000 people in it, they're going to give you a particular answer. Mm -hmm. But it's hard for them to remember the first time they played Wembley, right? And so... That's why I find this so fascinating. So I guess my, here's my next big question. When these giant outcomes start to happen immediately and you begin to understand that, wait a minute, ultimately this means we are creating a new category that will drive a dramatic amount of net new demand. And holy shit, we are now positioned to be the company that's going to lead. This, like, this thing is going to act, everything that we talked about, everything that you read, everything we jammed about, after the first, within the first few days of the first lightning strike, you can see now that it's going to play out. And so I guess what's it like to stand on the Wembley stage for the first time and see that happen? I, it's an amazing, it's surreal. And the experience of, 
because like I said, you have to take that leap of faith when you are at that lightning strike moment. You've done it. You've done the work. You've figured out your problem solution category name. You've developed a point of view with a blueprint that has all of the rules and all of the different products and you know t- types of um, things that you're going to do within this category, the rules of entry. And then you bring it to life. And then you have to have faith that that is going to land with people. And you know it will, but you also... There's a there, you know, there's an uncertainty. And then when that does start happening, you start to feel this incredible validation of like, fucking A, like we did that and we knew it. And then you, you know, there's no doubt. And the sort of revisionist history is like we knew it all along. Uh, but it but that's the feeling, and it's and it's pretty epic. And how would you compare that to in your prior life, let's just call them marketing or PR campaigns that you were involved with, even the successful ones? What what difference do you see between some kind of a marketing campaign or initiative and and a category design? There is so much in the the marketing career prior to this that was amazing and that that I felt great pride in and that, you know, the stuff would um you know, whether it was an ad or some kind of campaign or whatever it is, you see it out there and you say, okay, I feel like this is making an impact. The difference is, I think the two things, one, the scale of the impact. So you're starting to see this impact, not only the company, but all of its customers and all of its competitors, you know, and all of its prospects also. So you see that and that feels bigger. And then also the consequential nature of what we're doing is impacting all the people who work at that company. And we are the way that we do our category design projects. We are in it with that company. Like this is a you know joint venture, so to speak. And, and we have created this together. So the degree of ownership that I didn't do this for somebody, I did it with somebody sort of changes the way that I feel as well. So it's, it's, it's a very cool feeling. Awesome. What didn't I ask you that we should talk about in terms of what you've learned over the last your your first year and a half now as a category designer? I mean, there are a few other like the the question about like who do we actually target? That's something that is a question that comes up all the time in the work that we do. We say like, what is the problem? Who has this problem? And when we sort of have that conversation. Usually, I think we're starting too low and we're saying there is a person who buys this product, which is this person who is like maybe in the C-suite, probably not, probably some kind of a uh, manager who buys things and then a sort of a technical user who's actually using it. And companies spend a lot of time focused on those employees. And I think one thing that I've learned in my first year is leveling that up. You mentioned like, you know, this question to the CEO, where is the money coming from? Who's actually deciding this? Even if it's not their budget, who's the one that can sort of empower that bigger question? Um, you said that the bigger investment, um, that, was a, that was a really interesting thing to learn is like move a higher than you think you need to be because that's where the category needs to sit. Yes. Anything else, Mike? The other thing I thought was really interesting that I wanted to talk about for a second is when we do categories and when we talk about category design, a lot of times we're talking about category design with um, middle to late stage growth companies, sometimes public companies. And those companies often are moving from whatever category they're in or have been put in into something new and a type of company we started to work with, which was really interesting for me because they kept reaching out to us are the much earlier stage companies like the seed stage and series a, and we didn't have a product for them. We, we ended up making one. It's called ignite, um, which is a much faster version of the category design process that we go through with our bigger clients and it's designed to work with them where they are. So you need an idea of what this category can be, but you might not have to have it absolutely perfect. Maybe you develop that over time. But the reason I wanted to bring it up is what's interesting is the, the way that companies at this stage are using category design is a little bit different than the way that they're using them in the mid and, and late and, and sorry, growth stage um, companies where those companies are sort of focused on we need to like really hit our stride ahead of IPO or we need to, you know, revamp the category that we're already in. These earlier stage companies 
are using that as a way to structure their entire company from inception. So how do you actually start to build that company with a category-centric mindset? And it's a really interesting difference between how category gets used. Obviously, a lot of the same components and a lot of the same outcomes will be present, but but it's instead of going from a from to, it's an act of almost pure creation. Um, and these companies use it in a sort of intriguing way. So that was something interesting I thought was worth sharing. I, I love it. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is um, for those of us who have had and those of us who are building long-term careers as category designers, it's really fun to design categories at all different stages. And so there is a pure joy of working with an early stage startup where category design is part of the creation because everything new is part creation and part discovery. Right. It's it's a it's it's a magical blend. I think in the business world, people assume it's more discovery, um, which is a big part of why, for example, we can't stand the blue ocean metaphor because it's like, oh, and there's an existing thing we're trying to find. Well, there's some truth to that sometimes. And there's there was no blue ocean called spatial computing. Right. That's they, they're inventing a new planet. Mm hmm. So it's part creation and, and part uh, discovery. And the interesting thing is um, you could start category design when it's three people, uh, a dream and some slides in the very beginning, if, if all of any code. Uh, and the fun part about that that I have found is um, the category design in the very early stages is almost never the category design two years later. Mm-hmm. Just like the product in the early stages is almost never the product two, two years later and often the business model. And so it's fun to be iterating on all of it and sort of understanding all of that. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is, and, and there's a pure creation part of that that's really fun. And there's the at stakeness that we talked about earlier, but it's different. When you walk into a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company that has now realized, as all companies do, the biggest barrier to growth is the current category they're in. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a whole other conversation and a whole other approach. And it can't just be you, me, and Al and a big bottle of Sailor Jerry with a couple of folks from the founding team and uh, you know a couple of days of swashbuckling to figure some shit out, right? It's a completely different thing it's it's the uh how do we how do we win the marathon while doing the heart transplant at the same time um and so one of the things i've enjoyed myself as a as a as a lifelong or certainly a, a career-long category designer is doing category design in all of those circumstances and so i love mike that you're getting to have that joy of of working with all these different stage companies public companies pre-ipo companies and then very, very early stage companies. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's been, I've loved this transition. I'm so happy that I've moved into the world of category design. I'm grateful to you, to Al, to Kevin, you know, for, for creating this category of category design. And I just think it's, yeah, it's, it's really incredible. Well, thank you for saying that. The other thing I'll just say about that, and maybe this is a good place to, to wrap, but Al and I, and uh, Al, Kevin and I, as I think you know, were recently just together and, and we were reflecting on the last seven years since Play Bigger, the book came out and category design really got launched and all that stuff. And we're proud of so many things. And it's cool. It's very, very cool when people call us the godfathers and they say laudatory things and it, it's, it's, it's very powerful. And the thing that's important for me to say to you is I need you more than you need me. And category design now needs you more than it needs me or Al or Kevin or Damp or, you know, any of the kind of early, early folks and John Ruggi and Pablo and all of you amazing and Cartiga and so many amazing legendary newer category designers because you're going to pioneer a lot, if not most of the big new learnings. And so, and, and you teach me. 
And so there's, you know, we wrote about this in Category Pirates a while ago. We called it the mentor myth. And the, the myth, of course, is that the old uh, Obi-Wans teach the, the, the Lukes and the Leias, and it's kind of a one-way thing. And the reality, of course, is completely bullshit. It's a virtuous mm-hmm. circle. And so it, my point is, it is I who thank you from, for you choosing to make category design your career and to be somebody who contributes to and builds the discipline and makes the difference in the world that, you know, uh, Kevin and Al and I dreamed about in the very beginning. Well, yeah, I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. So very exciting stuff. Thanks, Mike. I hope you'll come back and teach me more about what you're learning as you continue to be a legendary uh, newer and less and less new everyday (laughs) category designer. Will do. Much appreciated. I'll talk to you soon, Christopher. Thanks, brother. All right. Bye. Bye. That was the legendary Mike Bruno from category design firm Play Bigger Advisors. Make sure you check out Mike Bruno on LinkedIn. Also at playbigger.com. And if you know someone who would enjoy this oddcast, please share it with them now. We also appreciate your social media shares and word of mouth. WOM is, was, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. And we would like to thank you. Thanks for investing part of your lives with us. Now, your website is the first thing people see about you. Is it legendary? If you're in a B2B tech company and it's time for a rapid relaunch of your site, visit our friends at atre.net. That's A-T-R-E dot net. And don't forget to go to Amazon and pick up your copy of Category Pirate's number one bestseller in marketing and startups, The 22 Laws of Category Design. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. It contains content known to the state of California to cause new categories and radically different futures. Please consult your lawyer, doctor, shaman, mystic, butcher, mechanic, dental hygienist, yoga instructor, and of course, category designer, before acting on any of today's information. Warning, the creators of this oddcast may have been consuming libations. Everything is the way it is because a category designer changed the way it was. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. Check out my new tech startup podcast, Boot Up, at bootup.show. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and build lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobus do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. The thought we'll leave you with comes from Stephen Covey, who said... I'm not a product of my circumstances. I'm a product of my decisions. 